I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome Sam Levine. He's voting rights correspondent for The Guardian to our broadcast and podcast. Welcome, Sam. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Sam, you've been tracking voting rights in the United States, especially in the context of the pandemic and all the obstacles. One of the things that I noted this past week in your reporting was out of Iowa, where the governor was overruling the secretary of state in dispensing paper ballots um, that could be mailed in. Uh, Please tell us what's happening in Iowa um, and whether it's a trend in other states. Earlier this month, Iowa had a primary where they saw record turnout. And that turnout was in part facilitated by a decision from the Secretary of State, Paul Pate, who's a Republican, to send mail-in ballot applications to all registered voters in the state. Uh, That was a program that was widely considered a success. Um, It was seen as necessary during the pandemic when there are severe limits on people being able to gather in person. And weeks after that record turnout, the Republican legislature in Iowa started moving a bill that at first prohibited uh, the Secretary of State from taking similar action just to mail absentee ballot applications. So we're not even talking about ballots to all registered voters. Uh, It was widely seen as a reaction to that kind of record turnout and an effort to, you know, frankly, make it more difficult for people to get mail-in ballots for future elections. So the legislature eventually compromised on that bill. They watered it down a little bit. And the final version they agreed on was that the Secretary of State has to seek approval from the legislature if he wants to do that. Again, he can't unilaterally act to send applications to all registered voters. Another indication of the obstacles to voting is um, out of Texas, where just this past week, the Supreme Court declined to step in to the fray and to overturn a decision there that limits the number of people who can vote by mail and have access to remote balloting to those over a certain age. Uh, And this just broke recently, but what was the declination of the Supreme Court to step in the case in Texas? Yeah, this is a really interesting and important case. Texas has some of the most severe restrictions on mail-in balloting in the United States. You can only vote by mail in Texas if you meet certain conditions, if you're over 65, if you're going to be out of the country, if you're going to, sorry, if you're going to be out of your county for election day and the entire early voting period and a couple other circumstances. And Texas, unlike many other states, has really refused to budge um, on making accommodations for people during the COVID-19 pandemic. And this case was a challenge to that, saying that Texas is treating its voters unequally, that the 26th Amendment to the Constitution guarantees the right to vote to anyone 18 or older, and the fact that you can only vote by mail if you are 65 or older um, is treating voters 
differently based on their age, which the 26th Amendment prohibits. So a district court a couple weeks ago ruled in favor of that challenge. It ordered Texas to expand mail-in voting. An appeals court um, overruled that decision and said Texas did not have to expand uh, mail-in voting. And then the Supreme Court weighed in and sided with that appeals court saying that Texas does not have to expand mail-in voting. But what was particularly interesting is that Justice Sotomayor uh, said in a separate note saying that she said that the case does raise really new novel questions about the meaning of the 26th Amendment and that the court should resolve it before November. This is an issue that Democrats and voting rights groups have been pushing more aggressively recently, this idea that the 26th Amendment can be used as a powerful protection to protect the right to vote for, for college students and, frankly, more broadly, for young people. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how lower courts address that um, leading up to the election. Does that mean, Sam, that there was a majority on the Supreme Court that did not want to entertain the emergency request by the by the state Democrats um, in this particular instance? I mean, the Texas has already had its its primary. So what is the practical significance of this uh, stay of the Texas court's decision? I think Texas has a, a, some local elections um, coming up in July. So I think that was the kind of main practical thing that, that Democrats wanted um, to expand mail-in voting for those elections and also creating the legal framework for an expansion of mail-in voting in the fall. There's a really big push to kind of get the legal framework resolved now so there isn't going to be a last-minute flood of lawsuits. Um, and it's really unclear what the accommodations for people to vote are going to be in the fall. States haven't really announced their plans yet. They've sort of decided on one-off um, solutions for their primaries. But there's a, a big push to really get the courts right now to establish a legal way of saying that states have to expand the right to vote by mail in the fall. And the Supreme Court in this case is clearly saying that they're not willing to go there in this case, in this particular case, just yet. And that means that there's a majority that is hostile to Sotomayor's argument that the Constitution prevents what, what Texas is doing and that it is discriminatory. Um, it, it shows that, that at a minimum, there's hostility to that in this emergency case. I don't really necessarily understand, Sam, how the Supreme Court will weigh differently Justice Sotomayor's concerns in any future cases. Yeah, well, Justice, what's interesting is Justice Sotomayor actually said that she didn't object to um, the lower court's ruling, that she, it's not clear um, what kind of the positioning of the justices here is. And it's not clear generally how the Supreme Court is going to react to these challenges um, seeking to expand mail-in voting in the fall. Um, and we have one kind of example, which was in April. Uh, there was a case in Wisconsin that the Supreme Court stepped in and basically said that 
the state of Wisconsin had to accept ballots that were postmarked by election day instead of um, rejecting ballots that were received after election day. Um, so we're still really not sure what the Supreme Court is going to do um, with these cases and how they're going to handle these arguments to expand vote by mail. That said, this has not been a Supreme Court that has been particularly supportive of expanding voting rights. They have sided um, in many cases now um, in on with states in defensive voting restrictions. Um, so it, it's it's it'll be interesting to see, but many people are not optimistic that the, this Supreme Court is going to be uh, particularly willing to step in and expand um, uh, voting by mail. So knowing what's gone on in Texas and Iowa, so in Texas you have a governor and legislature that are barring anyone who is under 65 from voting by mail you have in Iowa uh, a system that is declining to send the, these mail ballots to all registered voters, which they previously did. Uh, what are some other states in the most important battleground contests? You mentioned Wisconsin, but outside of Wisconsin, Iowa, and Texas, where these kinds of jockeying and, and uh, movement are happening between the voting rights advocates and uh, either state legislatures or governors who are resisting a universal access to mail voting? Well, one particularly interesting place is Michigan. Um, President Trump, of course, won Michigan in 2016 by around 10,000 votes. So, there's no question that there's going to be fighting over every single vote there. Uh, there's a Democratic Secretary of State in Michigan who has very um, aggressively moved to expand mail-in voting and make it as easy as possible for people to vote there and has met um, very strong Republican resistance. She is mailing a uh, absentee ballot application to all voters. She's created a portal where people can request a absentee ballot online. Um, Michigan, as of 2018, has a constitutional amendment where anyone can vote by mail for any reason. Um, so that's one where um, Democrats, I think, have moved very aggressively to make it as easy as possible to vote. Another interesting state has been Ohio. Um, for its primary, it's similarly, like Iowa, made a very aggressive push to get people to vote by mail um, and was largely successful in doing that. Um, but right after that, the legislature started pushing measures to restrict the ability of the uh, Secretary of State to do that again in future elections. Like Iowa, the final version of the bill in Ohio was, was watered down, but it prohibited the, the state from doing things like paying for the postage on absentee ballots, things that would very clearly make it easier to vote. And I think as we go into November and the polarization and the rhetoric around voting gets even more heated than it is now, um, there's going to be much, much more jockeying, especially in these key um, states. 
it's helpful that you're taking us on a tour where these disputes are ongoing. What about some of the other states that are important electorally, Florida, Pennsylvania, um, North Carolina? Yeah, Florida is a really interesting state to look at how what's happening there. In Florida, vote by mail is already a widely used practice there. Um, I've talked to Republican operatives there who have said that they have long relied on vote by mail as a tool to um, get out the vote among Republicans. Um, So that certainly contradicts the idea that put forth by the president and other Republicans that expanding vote by mail is only going to hurt Republicans. There have been studies that have shown that on the whole, it it does not give one party a partisan advantage um, over the other. So in Florida, there's very robust mail-in voting um, that people can request a mail-in ballot for any reason. Um, The state has to give people a chance to fix any if their ballot is lacking a signature or they forget to sign it or they forget to date it or something like that. Um, The state has to provide an opportunity for voters to fix that before they can reject the ballot. Um, North Carolina. Sorry. No, please tell us North Carolina. North Carolina, another battleground state um, where Republicans actually have control of the legislature there and have moved to make it somewhat easier to vote by mail. Um, You just have to get two witnesses for an absentee ballot in North Carolina, and they recently passed a law that said you only have to get one. Um, So there is some, there have been some Republicans who have been somewhat um, supportive of making it, you know, a little bit easier to vote by mail. So you mentioned Florida, you mentioned North Carolina. How about Pennsylvania? Pennsylvania, another interesting um, state. They, the state recently enacted a law that required, that allows anyone to vote by mail if they want to. Um, what's interesting, though, is that the state just does not have a lot of experience in running elections where the majority of people are voting by mail. It takes a ton of work to process absentee ballot requests, to print the ballots, to mail out the ballots, and then to process them once they get back. Um, and what we that's kind of what we saw when the state had its primary on June 2nd, that there were people who reported requesting an absentee ballot but never getting one, people who um, there was one county that said they just didn't have enough resources to mail ballots to everyone who had requested one. Um, And that's a a very serious issue that I think states like Pennsylvania that just don't have a lot of experience in running these vote by mail elections need to fix before November. They have to figure out, you know, even if we're going to allow everyone to request a ballot, how are we going to ensure that everyone can get their ballot on time and that we can process it uh, in a timely way? And as we're seeing cases of COVID spike in some of these hotly contested states, namely Arizona and Texas, um, you're going to see a paralysis of the social, economic, and political systems. And it will be even more 
grueling and demanding on whatever infrastructure that's intact. So in the case of, of Texas and Arizona, and I want you to reflect broadly on this question, but which governors and legislatures proactively determined amidst the pandemic that they needed to take action and, and build the capacity with whatever federal and state funding were available. Um, it have states, uh, and I mentioned Arizona in particular in the midst of a huge peak in COVID, but how, can you tell us which states have been doing some of the necessary groundwork to prepare? Yeah, um, I'm not sure about Arizona. I think one of the most encouraging examples has been in Wisconsin, where the state's primary in April was clearly um, not adequate. The state recognized that there were hours long waits in Milwaukee and elsewhere, um, really in the heart of the pandemic. And after the election, the state, the state election commission, which is responsible for running elections there, um, met and they decided that they were going to send out uh, a, a mailer to all registered voters in the state, instructing them on how to apply for an absentee ballot. And they were going to kind of centralize the processing of how to um, they were going to centralize the processing of of all those ballot requests, making it so that local election offices, which very often have few resources and are underfunded, didn't have to bear the burden of handling all those requests. So I think that's a real example of a state taking what they learned from the pandemic and trying to make things better for November. And um, what, can, what can you say about Arizona, though? Because uh, like California, the returns there in recent cycles have come in more slowly, and the counting process has already been a very glacially paced one. So I'm, I'm wondering how prepared, if at all, Arizona is for early voting, vote by mail, or any other necessary arrangements they're making for voters. Well, the encouraging thing about Arizona in particular is that a lot of voters are already voting by mail. Arizona allows people to request to be on a permanently um, vote by mail list, which allows them to automatically receive a ballot for every election. It's not totally vote by mail like Oregon or Utah or Washington, but it's nearly vote by mail. So the encouraging thing there is that there's already kind of the infrastructure to support um, massive voting by mail, which I expect will go up even more than it already is in Arizona. Um, you make a good point about the, the wait for election results in a state like Arizona. Um, in 2018, there was a very close U.S. Senate race between Kirsten Sinema and Martha McSally, and it looked like one candidate was ahead on election night only to have the other candidate win as more uh, votes were counted. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that um, in November in states like Arizona and frankly around the country as states are waiting for absentee ballots to continue to come in. It's just going to be extremely difficult to project a winner on election night. 
there seems to be kind of a universal consensus among experts now that we are not going to know who won the presidential election on election night. It's going to take several days to count all of the absentee ballots and know who won. There are some constituencies, populations that have experienced that, including in Arizona, in New York recently, and I'm sure elsewhere, that it's not going to be such a newfound phenomenon that is the election returns comprehensively will not be known for some hours after election night and maybe even days. Uh, This is all happening, Sam, and I want to ask you this as we close on what has been the anniversary of a Supreme Court decision that gutted voting rights for uh, significant populations in this country. Um, What do you think, covering this so expertly, this being your beat, voting rights, realistically, what is the path to restoring the Voting Rights Act so that states do have to comply as they did with that landmark legislation to ensure that the franchise is accessible to black and brown communities that are still stymied to this day in their efforts to vote? Well, the good news is, is that when the Supreme Court reached its decision in Shelby County versus Holder in 2013, it left a pathway to restoring the Voting Rights Act. It said that Congress could come up with a new formula to cover jurisdictions that would need to submit changes for preclearance. Since 2013, Congress has not done that. Um, And I think that's really a result of our modern politics. People forget that the last time the Voting Rights Act was renewed in the mid-2000s, it passed overwhelmingly. I think the vote was like 96 to nothing. Um, It might have been even higher than that. And that's just unimaginable um, in in the climate that we have today. Um, House Democrats have passed their own new formula for requiring states to to go back under preclearance. It's an updated formula of the one that was struck down, but Senate Republicans just haven't taken up the bill. So I think it's become pretty clear in recent years that the only way um, that the Voting Rights Act will be restored to its full power is with a fully democratic Congress. Um, And that's like so many other priorities that Democrats have right now. But I can I can imagine that when that does happen, if that does happen, um, that that will immediately be one of the first priorities of Democrats to put that most really powerful preclearance provision back into the heart of the Voting Rights Act. Governors are also capable of re-engaging preclearance or the requirements that had been implemented on a state and county basis, right? If you had a Stacey Abrams in Georgia, then what was expected from the original Voting Rights Act could still be instituted in some, in some way, right? Yeah, I think that's right. There are states that have their own version of the Voting Rights Act on a statewide level. There's a California Voting Rights Act, for example, Um, But again, that would require Democratic governors. It requires Democrats to have power 
um, in state legislatures. Um, but that certainly is a possibility um, absent any kind of federal action. And final question, Sam, again, given that this has been your beat for so many years covering the voting rights experience in this country, what state or municipality are you most nervous about in 2020? I mean, in 2000, it was Florida. In 2004, it was Ohio. In 2008 and 2012, thankfully, we were spared any of those kinds of controversies. In 2016, it was Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin under the microscope, um, you know, some more than others. But what what do you expect? Um, you must have an instinct about this. Yeah, I think um, I'm going to, there are three states that come to mind immediately. I think Wisconsin clearly just, we've seen in the last several years, just elections there are so incredibly close. Um, President Trump won Wisconsin 2016 by um, just under 23,000 votes. Um, there's just going to be an all-out war there, I think, for every single vote um, to make over the eligibility of voters and really, you know, ensuring on behalf of both parties that they can get um, people to vote. Um, Pennsylvania, too, I think, is really concerning, especially going, given the fact that they are trying to implement a brand new way of running elections. This is a state that is just really not used to voting by ma- largely by mail, and they're going to have to facilitate a presidential election, which sees turnout higher than every other election um, a com- in a completely new way, in a completely new environment. And I think Pennsylvania is another state where we're going to be waiting a long time to know the results. Um, and I think the last state is Georgia. Um, That is a state that is increasingly looking like a battleground state. Um, It's one where Democrats think that they can break into a place where Republicans have long had control. And in the state primary, we just saw severely long lines, four, five, six hour lines. And there doesn't really seem to be a lot of movement towards addressing those problems and getting them fixed for November. So I think those are the three places that I'm paying the most attention to, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Georgia. And we hope that there aren't nail biters there, because if you're paying attention to those states and the result is disputed, we will have another nightmare on our hands. Sam Levine, who expertly covers voting rights for The Guardian, appreciate your time today.